1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. This is the Word of the Lord. We are in a series of messages through the book of 1 Timothy called Rooted, the Maturing Church. And the reason why we selected the book of 1 Timothy to go through is because we as a church really have a need to grow up into the Gospel-driven church that God has called us to be. It was the same way at the church at Ephesus that Paul planted and now he had sent Timothy to pastor. And so this letter is a letter to Timothy from the Apostle Paul about how to lead this particular group of churches in the city of Ephesus. And in our, in our context here that we're looking at today in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's been a discussion about different relationships within the church. So at the beginning of 1 Timothy 5, we looked at how women and men relate, how older and younger relate. Uh, then, we, then we went on to look at how elders, um, I'm sorry, how, how we relate to widows and the most vulnerable in the church and in our community. And then last week, uh, Bob Cargo preached on how the church is to be led by elders and how elders are to lead the church in 1 Timothy 5. And today we pick up, uh, Timothy includes in this conversation the scope of our work and how we are to work. And he addresses a particular group of people that are particularly being led by, by other people. I mean, they are, they are basically you know, owned by other people. And he says some really interesting things about them. And so what I want to do in this sermon today is I want to talk about distortions of work, which will include slavery. And then I want to talk about some principles of work for us. So that's where we're going today. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I've had, I've had a lot of jobs. I mean, like, like I would be willing to say that I may have had more jobs than anybody in this room. I, I, I'm not certain on that, but I've had, I last count, 29 different jobs. 29. 29 different jobs. You know, and they've been from anything from a dishwasher at a diner to working at Arby's to working, you know, night shift in a factory to waiting tables, to being a, plum, a plumbing company delivery driver, fiberglass bathtubs, I mean the whole nine. I've done a lot of different jobs. Now they haven't all been careers, but they've been jobs. And one of the things that I learned early on, even from my parents who were not yet believers, is the importance of work. I picked up some bad habits along the way, but I picked up some really good ones too. And I'm convinced that work is a part of our life. And uh, a lot of times we are tempted to see work in a very unredeemed way. But the way that God calls us to see work is a very beautiful thing. So the first place I want to start us out looking at today is actually Genesis chapter 1. Uh, you know, work is one of the, the greatest callings that we have. Uh, and it's because we were designed to do it. So we were made in the image of God. And this, this, this call in Genesis 1.28 comes right after God has just you know, kind of finished His work of creation. And here's what the Scriptures say to us about our role in the world and how we relate to the world as those who work. Genesis 1.28 says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Wow. God gives us a lot of responsibility right in that text right there. He says things like this, be fruitful, fill the earth with offspring, use all of creation and subdue it, bring it under control, use it to create beautiful things, use creation, use my creation, have dominion, rule over it, use the raw materials of God's creation to create beauty, art, production, use the creation, work it, work the ground. I find it interesting that the Scriptures have the world as God creates it starting in a garden, but yet in Revelation, we see it ending in the image of a city. Isn't that interesting? It starts in a garden, it ends in a city. That's one of the reasons why we called this church New City Church. It wasn't because we were adding something new to the city of Lawrence, but we firmly believe that God was already at work doing His good stuff here. We're just trying to figure out what He's doing and hop on board with that. But we firmly believe that what we are called to do here is to, is to begin to, de to develop all of those things that God has brought in under our control and to steward relationships and to steward our responsibilities and our jobs in, this, in the context of this community and to do it well for the common good of humanity, not just to serve us. Everybody benefits from the common grace that God gives us all. And so our work adds to the common grace that everyone benefits from. Whether you're a homemaker or whether you work in a factory, whether you work in the political realm, whether you work as a teacher, no matter where you work, you work in the, the business world, it doesn't matter. It's all good and God's called us to it. Martin Luther uh, re really renewed the church's theology of vocation. And, and this isn't a direct quote, but this is someone that, that learned from his teaching. And here's how, he, here's how he summed up what Luther described uh, in our relationship to our vocation. He says this, God often hides Himself in our work. God often hides Himself in our work. So, so many times we can't wait to get away from our work that's one ditch we jump in. Or another ditch we jump in is we make our work our God. We, we kind of vacillate between those two extremes. And what Luther basically says is God hides Himself in our work. We discover who God is as we are on His mission, as we are working our normal 9-5 to five jobs. We see who God is in the midst of it. Work is a huge part of our lives. Francis Schaeffer says this, the Bible teaches that man is made in the image of God and therefore is unique. Remove that teaching, as humanism has done, on both sides of the Iron Curtain, and there is no adequate basis for treating people well. I think we see this in particular in the workplace. Our theology of work a lot of times is, especially as Americans, is to climb as quickly as we can up the ladder and to step on whoever we have to to get it done. That's what we're taught to do by the world. Schaefer goes on to say this, we must remember throughout our lives that in God's sight, there are no little people. There are no little people. There are no little places. Only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons 
in God's place for us at each moment. So we have a responsibility to steward the people that God brings into our lives and the places that He calls us to be. And Schaefer says, our relationship to God being made in His image and called to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the earth is the way that we do that. So if we don't have this theology that we are made in God's image and actually everyone is made in God's image, whether you are living in right relationship to Him or not, if we don't have that theology, we cannot live out our lives and work as He has called us to do. So here's our big idea in where we're going today. The Gospel changes the way that we work because it changes who we work for. Let me say that one more time. The Gospel changes the way that we work, the fashion in which we work, because it changes who we work for. So let's get into these sinful distortions of work that we observe. 1 Timothy 6.1-2 talks a lot about slavery. Slavery, as I said earlier, is the worst distortion of work that the world has ever seen. It's nothing new. The first place that our minds go to when we think about slavery is with the African slave trade. And, and while the context of 1 Timothy 6 isn't the context of the African slave trade, there are a lot of principles that are the same. And so I think it bears um, uh, an opportunity for us to enter into that a little bit today and to talk about specifically the African slave trade. So when we, when we hear these words, our hearts are grieved because it's the most egregious sin that really our nation has probably ever seen before where a group of people were taken from a different part of the world, brought here to be owned by other people and to work for them. It's the reason why there are such racial divides today. And as a, as a predominantly Anglo-Saxon church, I think it is wise for us to enter into that with much grace because we don't understand all of the pieces. And, and as Tim Keller once said in a sermon, he said, you know, Racial reconciliation is not something that we stop talking about. The world's always been talking about it, and we always will. And our predominant context has been because of the African slave trade that happened in our country. And this is, was especially prevalent in the South, the very land that we live in now. I was meeting uh, with a brother of mine this week, and he, and he, he, was just, he, he was telling me just a little bit about African-American culture. And, and one of the questions he said, you know, you, my ancestors have, have had stuff taken from them, so they want to own stuff now. That's a priority for them. And I'm just sitting with him and kind of grieving in my spirit because I can tell the pain that's in his heart and it's in his voice. And church, I think God has called us to do more listening and less speaking. And while we don't have all the answers and we don't have all the fixes, we know that as we enter in in humility into those conversations regarding race and particularly this distortion of work, slavery, we pray that God gives us much grace and that He does work to reconcile all people to Himself. And particularly in such a diverse community uh, like Gwinnett County and particularly Lawrenceville. So, you know, we shouldn't expect ourselves to just be able to get over it. You don't just get over things like this. Instead, we take the posture of Romans 12.15 where we weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn and we ask God to meet us in the midst of our mourning. Now the context of our passage today 
Slavery was not race-based and it wasn't lifelong. So the, the posture that Paul takes is a little bit strange to us because we say, you know, Paul, why did you not just outright say that slavery was wrong? Instead, why did you encourage these slaves that were Christians to work hard and to serve their believing and their unbelieving masters well? Why did you encourage them that way? We, we can't really get our minds around it. Well, I want to give us a little bit of context in the type of slavery that happened in the Roman Empire, which Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. So I want to give you a little bit of context around that. So uh, in the Roman Empire, there were 50 to 60 million slaves. Or a third of the, of the community at that time. Uh, so to gain Roman citizenship, many would sell themselves into slavery and then they would work off their debt. And many of them would be out of slavery even by the age of 30. Um, in most cases, slaves were in a variety of vocations. Managers, craftsmen, teachers, even government officials were slaves. Yet Roman law, um, you know, let, let slavery kind of go on and didn't even really give, give a lot of instruction on how slave masters were to treat slaves. Uh, it, was, it was super sinful. So even though it wasn't as bad as what our country has seen in the African slave trade, it was still super sinful. Andrew Lincoln in his commentary on Ephesians says that, that no one in ancient times could conceive an economic or labor structure that did not include slavery. So for Paul to come in, guns ablaze, and saying, hey man, church, here's what y'all got to do. The fir first things first, we got to get rid of slavery. For him to come in and say that, would immediately disqualify him. So what Paul does is he goes to the heart of what slavery is and what Christians can actually participate in. But the bottom line is, is that slavery is not part of God's creation. It's a sin. And the Bible condemns slavery. It, it undermines um, an individual's dignity before God and, and being made in the, in, the, in the image of God. I mean, listen to Exodus chapter 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him should be put to death. It's sinful. The Scriptures say this over and over again in different places. So, so what does this mean for today? What does this mean for us? What's the dynamic equivalent of slavery in the 21st century in the context of living in the United States of America? Well, the, the Greek word uh, for, for bondservant here, or slave, it's the same thing, uh, basically had this idea... Uh, of a servant that could bond out. A servant that could get themselves out of slavery. Uh, and and in, the, in the distortions of this, most of the time, like I said earlier, they were not slaves for life. It wasn't race-based. Uh, a lot of times they would sell themselves into slavery so that they could gain access to all the privileges of being a Roman citizen. And so that's the context of what he's talking about here. And yet Paul seems to encourage them that that even though their circumstances are out of their control, the things that they can control is their attitude and heart before their Father in heaven. And this is why I said the big idea of this is really that the gospel, it, it doesn't change our circumstances, um, but the gospel changes how we view our work because it changes who we work for. So Paul is addressing those in this context of, of 1 Timothy 6 here, those that are most tempted to, to, to live in despair because of their circumstances particularly in regards to their work. So he's addressing this here. So for us, what does this mean? I think uh, one, of the, one of the biggest distortions of work for the American Christian is an idolatry of work. 
So we either demonize our work or we idolize our work. Those are the two extremes that we live within. Either our life revolves around our work or work is something that we really don't ever want to talk about even though it's a huge part of our lives. And I think both of those extremes are not what a Gospel-centered view of work is. So our work is good and we're designed for it, but when we, when we fail to know who our real boss is, we're always going to distort it in some way or another. I want to share with you some stats that were taken several years ago from numerous interviews in an article uh, that I read. The average, the average American will work 90,000 hours in his lifetime. Uh, the average uh, American will, will often find more quality time at their job than they will with their family. And these are from Time Magazine here. 64% of Americans will cancel vacations that they had scheduled. 57% will not take their allotted vacation time. 25% will check their phone while they're on their vacation time that they took off. Not their personal phone, their work phone. 59% will check their work phone on Christmas and Thanksgiving and holidays like that. Friends, when we try to find our life in our work, we end up losing our lives in our work. It's, a, it's, a, it's just the way that it works. And actually, I think that it's a kindness of God. It's a kindness of God for, us to, for Him not to let us trust in our work, to find our identity in that work. You know, and I've seen it time and time again. Everything takes a back seat to work a lot of times. And we'll do anything to climb the ladder, um, regardless of the consequences that will be in the wake of us climbing that ladder. So what's this mean for you? To be honest, I don't really know. I don't really know where you're at right now. But I know a work is a, work is a constant, our relationship to our work is a constant conversation that we have to monitor. And we're not capable of being able to monitor it well on our own. So that means this, if you're single, uh, invite your friends and family into the conversation. Invite them in. Say, hey man, am I working too much? Is, is, is all I talk about work? I mean, do you sense that I work hard or do you think I'm kind of lazy at my work? I mean, ask people to, to peek into how you view your work and ask them for honest feedback. If you're married, I think it's wise to ask your spouse and to ask your closest friends, how do I view my work? Do you think I do a good job at what I've been called to do? Do you think I work too much? Do I take all my vacation time? I mean, what am I doing when I am on my vacation time? Am I just thinking about my work? Or is all that I do is talk bad about my work? Is, is that what I do? It could mean that you decide maybe that you have to stop traveling so much. Maybe your job requires that you travel and you realize that it's absolutely crushing your family right now. And you realize that if you keep trending on this path, your family's not going to be thriving. It may mean that you have to have that conversation with your boss. And it may mean that you need to set some boundaries around that because guess what? Your boss isn't going to set those boundaries for you. Rarely have I ever seen that. That's between you and God. It could mean that, that maybe you don't make as much money as you could. You're like, what? <laughs> maybe you make that decision. Like a guy in our church, it might mean that you take a demotion so that you can live closer to the, you can work closer to the place that you live so you can be more involved with your family and the church that God's called you to. 
A guy in our church did that. Climbing up the ladder and said, hey, you know what? I'm actually going to switch over here uh, and go do that. Or another guy in our church, uh, you know, his, his, in his industry, Saturdays are crucial for, for thriving in the industry and for gaining as much business and traction as you possibly can. He was in a discipleship group of mine. He said, he said you know what? My family, Saturday is like the most important day. My wife's not working. My kids are at home. And yet I'm working every single Saturday all day long. And he took a step of faith and he said, you know what, God? I feel like you're calling me to drop half the Saturdays that I'm working and just be with my family. You know what? He did it. You know what God did? He blessed him. He didn't lose any money. He trusted God and he filled up his schedule. It's amazing what God does when we trust him with our work. The question, the diagnostic question that we can ask ourselves is this. When your work goes away, what remains? When it goes away, what remains? Now, what I'm not saying is that your work doesn't matter. Your work does matter deeply to God. But when it goes away, what's left of your life? What's left of your family? What's left of your joy when your work goes away? Is Jesus still King? Or is that really affected by your job? If you're struggling with this, I want to encourage you to pick up a little book by Andy Stanley called Choosing to Cheat. Great little book. Uh, I read it uh, probably once a year. The basic premise of the book is this, is that every day you're, you're going to feel like you're having to cheat someone. You're going to feel like you're cheating your family because you've got to work long hours or whatever. You've got to go in early. Or you're going to feel like you're, you're cheating your work. And he says as Americans, even though we feel like we're cheating our work, we're probably really not cheating them. So you better choose to cheat well. And it's kind of a provocative title, but it's a great little book with some great little principles. Pick that up if you're struggling to maintain balance here and watch God speak to you through that work. Another distortion, another implication of those distortions is this. Friends, we pass on our distortions of work to the next generation. Those of you that have kids, your kids are picking up on what you believe about work, whether you know it or not, in your home. So either work is like this bad guy that you always talk about about when you come home, and that's what they think work is. Work is all bad. I never want to get a job. Or work is this thing that's like a mistress to you, where you're kind of always out with her. They're picking up on those types of things. They're picking up on what you believe about your work. And what I've discovered is this, is that work is rarely the problem. It's our relationship to work is where the problem comes in. Work is rarely the problem. You know, work is a part of everyday life, so it's important for our children to get a healthy view of work from us. And so what that includes is us giving our children responsibilities even in the household to work. I feel, I feel um, very convicted by that, um, that, that, that everybody plays a part in the household and they're learning how to do work even in the context of the house. And they're finding that they can be joyous in the Lord even when there's responsibilities around the house. It's teaching them to not, to not idolize or demonize work, but to find joy in who Jesus is even as we work. So now let's move on uh, to, to just looking at a redemptive theology of work from the Scriptures. And I want to remind you of our big idea. The Gospel changes the way we work because it changes who we work for. So let's pick up in Colossians chapter two, verses three or chapter three, sorry, verse twenty-three through twenty-five. Paul is talking about the way Christians work here. This this church in Colossae, and here's what he says: 
Whatever you do, work heartily. Work hard. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So he says, look, regardless of how people are treating you downline and upline, regardless of how that's going, your job is really about you and God more than it is about you and your boss. And because Jesus is your boss and because He endured the work to save you, Christians can be the hardest working people in the world. And we have a reason to work because we know that Jesus is King and we have eternity with Him. And so because of that, we don't get lazy now, but we work hard now. Not at the expense of other priorities in our life, but when we're working, we work as unto the Lord. God is using our physical work as the conduit of the spiritual work He wants to do in the world. How many times is He doing that? A lot of times we think about our work as moving on to the greener grass that's on down the road. And you, you always discover when you move on to the greener grass that it wasn't as green as it looked like it was when you're on the other side. The hope is not in a new job or in a new position. It's in seeing God in your life and Him present with you in the midst of your current situation. Now sure, we switch jobs, we switch, we switch all those types of things, but God is at work in the middle of it regardless of the culture of the company that we're currently employed in. We can stand firm with our Christian convictions and serve the Lord in that. So there's this language in 1 Timothy 6.1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own master as worthy of all honor. How do you do that? When you're yoked to a master who owns you, how do you look at that situation and look at the guy who owns you in an unjust way and say that he's worthy of honor? How do you do that? I think it's by understanding that we are meant to work yoked to Christ and not to anyone else on the earth. So we work out of our yoking to Christ, out of our joining to Christ, out of our union with Christ. I mean, listen to, uh, listen, listen to the Scriptures here. I'm going to read two passages, one from 1 Corinthians 7 and one from Matthew 11. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 and following, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. That is a key phrase. You were bought. Don't sell yourself to anyone else. Regardless of who your employer is, regardless of how bad your situation is, you were bought with a price. Jesus is the one that owns you. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. God is the one that keeps you in no matter what situation you find yourself in in regard to your work. We're called to remain in the Lord. Now, sometimes we move on from vocations, right? He's saying, hey, look, if you can get yourself free from whatever situation you're in, avail yourself of that, go for it. But maybe sometimes God calls you to stay even though it's really tough. Because there's more work that He wants to do than what you can see. 
Sometimes God calls us to do that. And the only way we know what He's calling us to do is to be yoked to Jesus. And His Spirit speaks to us and it convinces our conscience of what we're called to do. So what's a yoke? A yoke is a, is a wooden bar uh, that couples two distinct animals together and aligns them for the purpose of completing um, an aligned work. Okay? It takes these two oxen that are kind of going all crazy, puts them together, binds them together, and channels the work so that they're more efficient. Paul says that slavery <clears throat> is like being yoked to a bondservant. This is what he's saying right here. But as Christians, this undergirding of us having a good attitude toward our work, even though it's oppressive, comes from being yoked to Jesus. So listen to what Jesus says about our relationship to Him. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, this is in the context of the, the religious leaders of the day oppressing the people of God with the law of God. Using it for their own advantage. But I think it translates to physical work too. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The thing that Jesus wants to do most in your life is to give you rest. But we have to come to Him, church. So many times we just, we just try to stay yoked up to something else and we're in bondage on the inside. Jesus says, come to Me and trust Me with your work. I want to give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, He says. Learn from Me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And as you do that, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of Jesus is different. It's different than any other yoke that you're going to put on because He's the one that's doing all the work. You're just attached to Him as He's working. He's the one that's working in the world. Now while you endure physical labor because it's good for you, it's Jesus that's leading you through that. It's Jesus that keeps you in the game and keeps you close to His heart. But church, we have to come to Him. And He invites us to come to Him. How quick are you to come to Him and take His yoke? How quick are you to trust in Him, especially in regards to your work? A lot of times as Christians, we just kind of check that. Work is kind of this separate thing over here that God's really not... God's really not in that. I just kind of have to do that. He's, he's really not involved in half of my life. That's kind of what we say. He, he really doesn't care about that. Jesus says, come to me with all things, and I want to give you rest for your souls. Our work in Jesus' kingdom is like a father and son, a father and daughter endeavor. You know, I shared this story several years ago about uh, my son Caden. He's down here. Hey, bud. And, uh, and we were building a wall in our basement. And as we were building this wall, Caden comes downstairs, he buckles on his, uh, his little tool belt with his kind of plastic tools. And he comes downstairs, he says, Daddy, I'm ready to work. And we're building this wall in the basement. And I said, okay, bud, let's work. And so we get, uh, we get down there and, uh, and I'm hammering and he's got his little plastic hammer over there hammering. And uh, he stayed down there with me for like an hour and a half. And after we had uh, uh, finished our work for the day, he comes upstairs and he says, Mommy, come and look at this wall I built downstairs. And so she comes downstairs and, and we're down there and, and uh, he's just like so pleased. He's, got this, he's grinning from ear to ear because he's, he's working. 
Now, you and I know as we look at that story, we know that uh, Caden, even though he is an awesome kid, as a two-year-old, was not able to build a wall. Not able to do that. But in his mind, because he was so connected to the Father's work, he was building the wall. Friends, what if we looked at our jobs like that? What if you looked at what you do 9 to 5 or 9 to 7 to whenever you were? I don't know what your hours are. What if you looked at your job like that? It's a father and son. It's a father and daughter endeavor. And there is kingdom work that God is doing even though you're doing physical work. There's spiritual work that's coming alongside that that God is doing. And it's coming through in the ways that you interact with the people that you work with. The way that you see them made in the image of God. The fact that they have dignity even though they treat you poorly. It's coming through in the integrity of how you, how you account for your expenses on that expense report. It's coming through in how you, um, <clears throat> how you dialogue in the workplace chatter. It's coming through in all of those places. And Jesus is pleased to build His kingdom in and through you no matter who your boss is on earth. He's pleased to do that work. Secondly, second principle for us is this. We are made to work from rest, not for rest. We are made to work from rest, not for rest. Before the fall, our Father in Heaven created us to have this rhythm of work. But He also created us to have this rhythm of rest. I mean, do you think, do you think on the seventh day God rested because He was tired? That's right. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he wanted to set a rhythm for humanity. He wasn't tired. He created the world and he rested and he saw that it was good. He reflected on his creation. Yet you and I seem to have this, we seem to have this attitude toward work where we work, 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 and then we take a vacation. We never rest in the middle of our work. And so we, a lot of times we don't have uh, perspective on what God's calling us to in the middle of our work. I mean, guys, we are so sinful that we can't go more than seven days without losing the gospel in our worldview. And that's why every seven days we're called to have a 24-hour period where we cease working as we know it and we work on our relationship with Jesus. I mean, the Sabbath is not just about an absence of labor. It's about a redirection of labor. And so we focus on that relationship with Jesus, but it's the, it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that we will, as Americans, we will bypass that thing every time. Oh yeah, I'll get to Sabbath later. Well, you know, in the context of the Hebrew world, you know, it really wasn't, uh, it really wasn't that necessary for us, but it was for them. We, we'll justify it over and over and over again. But the bottom line is, is that we are made to work from a position of rest. And when you know, you know, like when you go on a vacation or whatever, and you come back to work, you're rested. You have a, you have more of a perspective. I mean, God wants us to do that every single week of our lives. Now, I'm we're we're not going to get legalistic about Sabbath, okay? But if it's not a part of the conversation of the disciplines that we have, there's something that's malfunctioned in our worldview, in our view of who God is. Listen to what Jesus says um, about the Sabbath. Jesus says uh, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, the, the Pharisees are trying to get all legalistic on him because he's healing people on the Sabbath, right? 
And we're like, come on, guys. Are you kidding me? But Jesus says, hey, here's the heart of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for the Sabbath. And a lot of times we get legalistic. We think, i got to check that off the box and make sure that I can say I had a Sabbath this week. And a lot of times we can cease working our job and still not have a Sabbath. Because Sabbath is about a focus on the work of the Lord in our hearts and in the world. Now that should be restful to us. It should look different than the other parts of our week. It's a weekly reminder where God resets us and reminds us of the Gospel and His love and control over over our current positions and problems that we have. That's what the Sabbath is. And we need it every single week. So if you're failing to have that as a part of your life right now, you should expect your work rhythm to kind of be off. You should expect to be frustrated with your work because you're not taking your cues from God. Now, God is gracious in this. He leads us to repentance. So what, what might it look like this week? Well, Maybe you sit down at the, at the lunch table today and you say, hey, how can we really get serious about Sabbath? Not get legalistic, but like really get serious. I mean, we're going to have to say no to some things so that we can say yes to a lot of really good things that God calls us to. You know, I, I mean, I get it. If you got kids, I know that sports are on the day that you want a Sabbath. You got to make some decisions. Um, and I don't know what those are. I don't know what the answers are. It's between you and the Lord. I mean, I know that there's meetings that you have to go to. But I know this, that as we consider it, God blesses us as we wrestle with it. Because our, because our, our current context doesn't value the Sabbath. But yet, Jesus seems to deeply value the Sabbath and think that it's necessary for our faithful walk with Him. Lastly, in Christ, all our work is centered on service to others. I want to read you a quote uh, from Tim Keller out of his book, Every Good Endeavor, which is a fantastic book. He says this, A job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it for them rather than yourself. And so our work can be a calling only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interest. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. Your work was made to cultivate the grace of God in some way, shape, or form in the world. And when we forget that part of the narrative for us, we begin to slowly disintegrate from the inside out. And we begin to hate our work because we have, a, we have a, a, a misdirected focus on what God's called us to do. You know, there's a difference in a job or an occupation and a vocation or calling. Occupation is what you do for a living. Vocation has to do with your calling. Here's what I get. There are many of you that are in a, in a job or an occupation right now that is not a calling for you. And you want to abandon it with everything that you've got right now. And God may be calling you to do that. But most of the time I've found that He makes it really clear when He calls us to step away from that. And so what does it look like for you to endure even in the midst of a job that you don't like as you discover your calling. It looks like we, we sit and we wait on the Lord for Him to open those doors up. And as we, as we pursue the occupation and job that God has right in front of us with all that we've got, God is working things inside of us that will benefit people on down the road even when we think we're in the midst of a dead-end kind of job. God makes His calling clear through our faithfulness in those little things. He always does to us. 
When I think about uh, Jesus, I think about how He redeems work. So, I'm going to close with this. In John chapter 13, Jesus um, is in the upper room with His disciples. This is the last time that He's going to have with His disciples. And um, they have this meal together. The, they have the Last Supper together. And, and in, the, in the midst of that time that they're having together, the meal, Jesus shows His disciples what work looks like in His kingdom. And Jesus assumes the, the, the position of a slave. He takes off His robe, becomes vulnerable before them, picks up the servant's towel, and begins to wash the dirty, disgusting, nasty feet of His disciples. Now these guys just wore sandals. I mean, it was absolutely disgusting feet. And you know what He tells His disciples to do? He says, take this example and go do likewise no matter what you do in the world. Friends, we are, our work first and foremost in the world is for Jesus. And we are called to be the chief of servants, the chief of foot washers. No matter if you own a business and you got employees that report to you, no matter if you work at an entry-level position or an hourly wage blue-collar worker, it doesn't matter. You're the chief of servants. And we have to believe that God is doing work in His kingdom through our effort. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for uh, how You redeem work. How you, you take the things that we are employed in every single day and You give us an eternal perspective about how You want to work out Your kingdom in a lot of times a hidden way through our work. Father, I think about all the work that Jesus did to secure us in a relationship with You so that we can work from a place of rest. Lord, I pray for our church today that if, that if anything, God, they might, their, their work and their intensity of their work as they focus on what You've set before them, it may be bolstered a bit more, but their rest and their peace and their joy may be bolstered as well. That they would live out of their relationship with You and work from a place of rest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.